0: This is the book show here on RTE Radio 1 and later this evening we'll speak to former UK politician Alan Johnson about his new role as a writer and we'll hear about professional ghostwriting. But first poet Holly McNish has recently published Plum, a collection which is grouped around themes of shame and embarrassment. It doesn't shy away from topics which are difficult and at this point I should say that her poetry does contain some adult themes so for those of you with little ears around the radio you should be warned. Subjects include the death of a young friend, brass size, menstruation and STDs. Shame is viewed from the perspective of a child as well as a grown-up. The collection also includes poems written by Holly when she was a young child and teenager. I met Holly recently and began by asking her how she made this brave decision.
1: Basically, because I got asked to do the book and I never ever like write a collection, Picador asked me to do it and I always choose poems that I've already written. I never write poems for a collection which I know a lot of people do and I'd literally just written a poem which is in the book and it doesn't have a title and it's just about fruit basically, how much I like fruit and I looked at it and then I was looking through my old poems just randomly with a friend and I realised there was a poem that I'd wrote when I was eight, the first poem and it was really, really similar to this poem. It was like a similar theme, same rhyming couplets, the same number of words, like it's so similar. And I thought, oh my God, maybe maybe my writing hasn't changed that much since I was eight years old. And then um, I realized that in the last year, I'd sort of written a lot of stuff about being a teenager. And yeah, when I was putting it in the book, I just thought it would be funny. Really, like I've got all these poems, and I've got so many other ones, and it was hard to decide what to put in. But I just thought it might give people a laugh. It wasn't really any structural idea. I just yeah, I thought it might might be funny any of the poems are also, they involve you
0: re-engaging with issues that maybe you felt very strongly about in your youth, and I'm wondering, in writing about subjects from an adult point of view, did you find that your views had stayed the same on some subjects, or were there very any strong
1: deviations? Mm, I was going to say there weren't that many strong deviations, but I think I'm just a lot less like angry about stuff. I'm just as angry, I just don't feel like I want to like rant about stuff or just scream about things. I'd rather kind of calmly write about them and think about them now. The one thing that has changed, I guess, is attitudes towards sex, I think. Like, I was quite surprised looking at my teenage poems. I guess when I was sort of 15, 16, 17, 18, I was kind of writing about all the things I wanted to do, and I think I was a pretty passionate young kid. Like, I guess I was sort of fantasising about things, and sexual things, as everyone does, but then the actual reality of it was the same sort of stumbly teenage (laughs) rubbish that everyone goes through so I think looking back I was a bit sad that I had all this sort of confidence when I was just sitting on my own thinking about what I wanted to do and writing about it but then when I was actually I guess more with a guy or, or in reality it was nothing like that
0: I guess in a way that's sort of connected to a lot of the themes I- I in the book are to do with shame. You write a lot about bodies and you write about first bras and periods and also girls being sort of shamed or teased for, for sexual behaviour or sexual feeling. And um, Was that something that you wanted to address because it, it's, you know, in the words of Joe Jackson it's
1: different for girls, uh, very much so I think. Yeah, I just realised I'd written a lot about it and I think I'm really bored of taboos now. I'm bored of like things like murder not being taboo, but like, talking about orgasm or masturbation or whatever, being taboo. And I'd realised, yeah, I'd written a lot about it, but I'd never shared the poems, and I guess I'd never shared the poems for exactly the reason that I'm talking about. I'm in a really nice situation in life in that I had my daughter at 26, and and so did my mum and and my gaga, my, my gran, even younger. So I've got, like, four generations of women in my family now, so I find it fascinating looking at how my daughter is at seven... And then how my gagger is at 91, and them talking to each other about things like, and then my daughter saying the word vulva, and my gagger just being totally like telling her to stop all things like periods. Like, I have a pot of sanitary towels by my toilet in my house, and it's just me and my daughter that live there. But my gagger, comes she always tells me not to leave them there and to put them in the cupboard because what will people think kind of thing or you know so things like that I love seeing their interactions and how much things have changed but I still think they haven't changed enough and to do with orgasms I think That was a big thing that I thought, am I going to put this in? But speaking to all my friends, just the fact that most boys I know had an orgasm before they had sex, like they learned about their own body first and it was quite like a jokey thing that they would talk about, whereas most girls I know had their first orgasm about four years after they'd started having sex. Like that is, I think, one of the biggest differences in, well, most most teenagers that I was friends with and myself as well, which I would love to change by the time my daughter is is that age because I think it's it's rubbish really.
0: There is a strong sense as well one of the, the big takeaways from from the book that I thought was was the idea of shame and that shame can be very gendered as well uh, and it was having a young daughter a motivating factor in putting a lot of these these pieces in into the book.
1: Yeah I guess so but also me realising that I was worried about putting them in the book because of my daughter. Like I think she the fact that I'm a mum censors me more than anything because I'm not really worried about what most people in the world think of me but having this small child who I know at some point is gonna read these poems made me think oh maybe, maybe I shouldn't put this in there maybe I she doesn't want everyone know, <laughs> to know when her mum first had sex or whatever and then I thought well, this is the point this is the whole point that I'm embarrassed about this more than anything for a young girl like, I need to put it in there and there was um <laughs> my mum was like, "Oh, please don't put the poem about chlamydia in there." But I'd written it already, and I thought, if I don't put this poem in, there'll be a, a reason that I don't put it in. And actually, I don't. I don't really want everyone to know about these things. But I work with loads of, loads of teenagers, and my mum's a nurse, and she says, you know, loads of people don't get checked up for things like this because of the shame. Like, there's, you know, there's practical consequences, aren't there? A lot of feeling ashamed of your body or ashamed of these things. And the reason that I got it, it was because I was too embarrassed to buy a gondom and then the reason you know you so it's all it all just builds and I thought well if maybe putting one poem in and slightly embarrassing myself maybe makes one person reading it think actually maybe maybe I shouldn't be so ashamed of this past or ashamed of whatever then you know, I've embarrassed myself enough, I'll just keep going, I reckon. You
0: talk about something that really interested me, about the idea that when someone uses one word or an expression or a name maybe to define us when we're young, that it can really stay with us. And you found yourself returning to phrases that were connected to you and there was one in particular that stood out for me in a poem called Cold. Can you tell us a little bit about the poem Cold and maybe read it?
1: But yeah, basically I, I got "Cold, Cold by one guy that I was actually pretty good friends with because I wouldn't... F- do something with him around the back of the school sheds or whatever it is it's always you know something like that and he called me an ice queen and said i was cold or frigid i guess people get cold and yeah i just started writing all these poems about about being cold and thinking oh you know i'm that's me and like defining myself as a teenager yeah i must be frigid or prudish or everything like that and actually reading my other poems I'm totally not. I just didn't fancy the bloke, <laughs> which is often the case. for like, God's sake! I think it took me about five years to realise actually you're a very passionate young person, Nolly. You just don't want to get fingered at the disco. Like that's that's all right. I sort of felt sorry for my teenage self as well a little bit. Like I wasn't I wasn't like traumatised by this event to be honest. And I'm still friends with the bloke, and I find it quite funny now. But I do think, oh my God! Yeah, I wish he hadn't taken that board so much. Cold. Written, age 13. I am an ice cube. I am new-lying snow. I fall into my angel and I'm never gonna go. I'm winter waters below the frozen lake. I'm hail and I'm sleet. I am the first snowflake. I'm a tub of ice cream waiting frosty to be sold. I'm a carving chip from ice. Basically, I'm cold. One of the th- main things I think in the book as well
0: is that there's now a huge amount of acceptance about yourself not caring about you know grey hairs or an accepting of your body and your post-childbirth body, because some people don't get to live long lives. I guess.
1: Tell us a little bit about the poem resolution in particular. Yeah, I think most of the poems are me like trying to accept my body. Don't get me wrong, I still mainly look in the mirror and think that's a bit rubbish, which but annoys me that I think that's on... trying not to um but resolution I wrote after one of my friends died basically so um he was 32 and it was one of my best mate's husbands and they had twin boys who were two at the time so she'd been while I'd been like touring and had a book that was going really well basically my best mate was caring for her and her, her husband who was who was dying of of, of cancer of the temples um, and it was very visible and I would go round and visit them and he was just still so amazing and never complained once and came down, even he couldn't drink or eat by the end of it and couldn't talk, but he would come down and sit with us and, and just after that, I guess these things happen there's an awful reason to, to think stuff I just sort of stopped like, stop moaning about getting older. Like, it really is such a privilege. And then I found myself again, like looking and and plucking a grey hair out. And then I just wrote that poem afterwards because I thought this is ridiculous. And it's not it's not about um like not I'll probably still dye my hair until i I'm sure I will. It's not about thinking oh you can't you know. Don't buy anti-winkle cream. Like, you've got to accept the ageing process. Just not to moan about it. You know, like dye, dye your hair if you want. It's cool. I like having different coloured hair. But just, like, stop moaning about getting older, basically. It's like the only, my only aim in life, I think, now, especially with a kid, is to... I just really want to see her grow up as long as I possibly can. I think everything else is just out the window.
0: And will you read Resolution for us?
1: Resolution. I will not complain about another grey hair, not their absence of colour nor their violin strings. I will not complain about the way they proclaim themselves, their refusal to flatten or try to fit in. I will not spend any more time at this mirror, hunting new strands between finger and thumb. There is too much to do, and there are too many eulogies spoken for those who had none. And thanks to Holly McNish, Plum is published
0: by Picador. Now, most authors dream of seeing their name in print, but some writers never do. Liam Geraghty met with some writers who pen books but never get their names on the covers, otherwise known as the ghostwriters.
2: You know, they always say, are ghosting books true? But is any biography true? Because everybody has their own truth. And for example, there was a case where Mary Fleming told me how she told her son that she'd planned to go to Dignitas. And he told me a different story. And I decided it was her book, I went with her truth. So you, you have to think That's an important thing, too. If it's their truth, you go along with it.
1: Nonfiction
3: ghostwriting is an underappreciated form. The writer has the momentous challenge of telling the story of someone else's life through that person's voice.
2: Well, you have to be very confident in your writing. For a start, you have to know how to structure. You have to feel a story.
3: Ghostwriter and journalist Sue Leonard.
2: Because that's secondary to the other skills that you need, which are empathy, curiosity. The same sort of skills that a journalist needs, except not an opinion journalist, because you cannot have your own opinions. That would really kill the whole thing.
3: Sue says the most challenging story she had to tell was that of the late Marie Fleming, who took a landmark case against the Irish state to lift the ban on assisted suicide as she battled with multiple sclerosis.
2: There was a huge responsibility because she was losing her voice and I was giving it back. And because I got so fond of her and so fond of the family, and I felt it was a very important story to tell so for all those reasons but it's funny when I was actually writing it I didn't feel the pressure because it felt like a collaboration well it is a collaboration so it wasn't as if I was going home with this massive burden on my back although every time I left her I used to have to go and go for a walk because you know the, the sadness of that whole situation
3: Nicola Pierce is a children's writer.
4: But there was a time up to about five years ago that I ghostwrote. I ghost wrote people's life stories.
3: Nicola had been editing here and there, but really wanted to write full time. So when Maverick Press asked her to ghostwrite a book, she leapt at the chance. The job was to write the memoirs of the last state executioner of Thailand.
4: This was completely new. I mean, I could spell Thailand. I didn't know where it was on the map. And I knew nothing about prisons or state executions. And um, first of all, before I could start, of course, I had had to send me through photographs. So I'm looking at photographs of people about to be shot, people who had been shot. But that's the thing about ghostwriting. So this was the first book that I ghost wrote. And I would do two more for Maverick House Press all around people in Bangkok.
3: When Nicola wrote her first children's book, Spirit of the Titanic, she says her experience in ghostwriting proved invaluable.
4: Probably the most important thing I learned was character, how important a character is. Samuel Joseph Scott in the Titanic novel just hit. I mean, it did really well. Now, nothing compared to Harry Potter, but it has sold uh, just over 30,000 copies, which I'm pretty proud of. And I absolutely believed that was thanks to this apprenticeship of doing 12, 13 ghostwritten books and taking somebody um, and telling their story in a way that anyone can relate to is making us every man, every woman.
5: My name is Alison Healy. I'm a journalist with the Irish Times and first-time ghostwriter.
3: Alison's first foray into ghostwriting is the memoirs of the Ploughing Championship's managing director, Anna Mae McHugh. If she should run for Taoiseach, she'd win it in a hack. If she ran the country like the plough, sure millions would come back. But she's far too good for politics. She knows more than all that. So she's sticking to the plowing hour, Anna Mae McHugh.
5: Well, Anna Mae McHugh is leash woman who runs the National Plowing Championships. She's been involved in it since the 1950s. She's 83 years old. She's very vibrant. Her mind is as sharp as ever. Her recall for this spook was fantastic because you're talking about, say, I might say, 1971. And immediately she'd say, oh, the plowing championships was in such a place and it was went this way or that way. She's a fantastic person for a ghostwriter to work with. Oh, I remember bringing down the first chapter to her and I was like, I put it in front of her and then I was interviewing her again and she kept looking at it and it was like a school child, you know, getting an essay corrected at school or something. So in the beginning it was very daunting, but she she liked it from the get-go. So it was just a matter then of tweaking little things and adding more detail and that sort of thing.
3: Back with ghostwriter and journalist Sue Leonard, She says that ghostwriting is quite simply a hugely rewarding role. She remembers the first time she met Marie Fleming.
2: I walked into this room with Tom, who I'd met before, and you could feel this aura that she had. And we sat down and one of the first questions I asked her was, was she afraid of death? And she said, not at all, because she'd had a near-death experience and that she knew that there was a heaven because she'd seen her father and her dog waiting for her. And... As it happens, I've had a near-death experience too. So I started describing my near-death experience to her, which was quite bizarre. But Tom actually looked up at this stage and he said, you never told me that story before. And she said, well, it happened. And he said, do you want to know what happened that night? And she said, no, what happened that night? And he said, I actually got your, your heart going three times. And she said, you never told me that. So there I am in a room with these two people and they had never told something that they told me on first meeting. And that... That's incredible. And thanks to Liam Gertie for that report.
0: Now, there are only two days left to enter our Dear Character competition where we've been asking you to write a letter to a character from a novel. We've been inundated with your responses and delighted that you've risen to the challenge. So, you can still pick a character from any novel and write a letter to them in under 500 words. So, what will you say to them? Will you offer good advice, a piece of your mind, a warning, a declaration of love or the opposite? You praise them or have a go at them. You have until midnight on October 9th to enter the competition and will draw a shortlist from the entries which will be judged by the Laureate for Irish Fiction, Anne Enright. The winning letter will receive a €250 book token and all details of the competition are on the bookshow page at rte.ie. A selection of those letters will be read at a live recording of the book show that we're recording on Saturday, October 21st in Smock Alley Theatre in Dublin and joining judge Anne Enright will be writers Donal Ryan, Lisa McInerney and Ross O'Carroll Kelly creator Paul Howard. There's still some tickets available for the recording and you're invited to join us there, so please book your place at smockalley.com. Now, by the time Labour politician Alan Johnson left politics in 2011, he'd risen to the top tier of government as Education Minister and Home Secretary. His departure helped him to realise one of his big life goals, to become a writer. His first memoir about his impoverished and deprived childhood, That Boy, was a vivid account of a tough life. Abandoned by his father, his mother died when he was just 14, and so he was brought up by his sister Linda. His latest book, The Long and Winding Road, is the third and final in this trilogy and in it he leaves his trade union job for Westminster with Tony Blair in 1997. Alan Johnson told me how he felt about his literary success.
6: I was delighted. I mean, in This Boy i describe how when I was 12, 13 I really wanted to be a writer because I read all those bits on the back of paperbacks by writers about what wonderful lives they they went off to be lumberjacks and then eventually ended up writing, you know, uh, Ernest Hemingway, Jack London, all those. And I'd turn out, doggerel, and my English teacher, Mr Carlin, who was one of my heroes, got me to send them off to different magazines and they'd be rejected. And Mr Carlin said, oh, Alan, every great writer has received rejection slips and all of this. He was humoring me, obviously, because this was rubbish that I was writing. And then 50 years later, I actually write something (laughs) And I kind of knew this was a good story, and that my mother and my sister, in particular, were two really powerful characters. And if I, that if I could tell it half decently, that it would it would be a, you know a moderate success. But I didn't expect to win the Royal Society of Literature on Darcy Prize or the Orwell Prize. Um, that was something I dreamed of being. I never dreamed of being a politician. I never dreamed of being a government minister. But I dreamt of being a rock star and I dreamt of being a writer. The rock star bit, I think, will come soon, I hope.
0: (laughs) Um, The current book, The Long and Winding Road, it's the third volume and it takes us through your parliamentary career, particularly when you came to power with Tony Blair in that landslide 1997 election. Before that, you'd worked very closely with the union. So what was it like to suddenly find yourself in Westminster?
6: It didn't feel that strange because I'd been a trade union general secretary I'd led the campaign to stop the post office being broken up and privatised in the early 90s, big victory against John Major and Michael Heseltine. I'd been used to lobbying people in Parliament. But I describe in the book how I followed Alan Clark into Parliament. He'd come back in as the MP for Kensington and Chelsea. And as I drove down to the underground car park and parked my Mondeo, he unfolded himself from an open-top two-seater sports car. And with an air of insouciance, kind of with one hand in his pocket, flicking back his long hair, ambled towards where we were supposed to be. And I thought, well, he knows where he's going. I'll follow him. But I had briefcases and files and all kinds of things. And I kind of thought, well, he looks like he belongs. And I wondered whether, whether I did. The book
0: begins and ends with an account of your estranged father, Steve, who left your family in the 1950s. And you meet him at the beginning of the book, I think, at your sister's wedding. The first time, I think, you'd seen him since you were eight. And he dominates the first book as well. Was your father's story something that you felt you had to address and confront?
6: Yes, well, I wanted to tell the story of my mother, to make her live again on the page to and to get to know her better. And in doing that, I had to tell the story of... My father as well, of course. So I tell the story of Steve and Lily. Now, Steve kind of left my life when I was eight, which for me and my sister was the removal of a dark cloud. I mean, he used to beat my mother up. he never worked. He was, you know, gambled all his money away, drank. And he left our lives when, when I was eight. He ran off with the barmaid from the pub he was playing the piano in. And that's the last I saw of him, except he was a peripheral character, at my mother's funeral, and that was when I was 13. So I'd seen him briefly once, you know, since I was eight. You know, my mum used to nag me incredibly, despite all that he did to her. She wanted to take me to meet him with his new wife because she said a boy needs a father, and I refused to go. But this idea that you need a father in your life, well, you don't if he's abusive, actually, to your mother. You don't if he's abusive to your sister. You don't need that kind of character in your life. You're better off without them. I was perfectly fine with a single mother.
0: You got to the highest echelons of government. You were Home Secretary, you were a minister, and yet all through the book there's a sense that you never forgot your early years going back to this small cramped childhood home that you lived in. Do you think that social mobility is possible in Britain today and do you think that if you were starting out in 2017 that you would get the same levels?
6: I don't think I would. And I don't think I would because there is now a much bigger emphasis on education. So the thing about me, there were, there were many people in the House of Commons who had tough beginnings. David Blunkett, born blind, his father died in a terrible accident when he was four. He was told he'd either be a braille typist or a piano tuner, You know, and he rose to be Home Secretary. That's an incredible story. David Davis, who was my neighbouring MP, was a Tory, born to a single mother on a Wandsworth housing estate, never knew his father. The difference for those two Davies is they went to university. And now that is so much more important. I left school at fifteen, had no qualifications whatsoever, but could waltz into millions of jobs. You can't do that now. And also there was the trade union movement, the untold story of social mobility. Lots of people like me had an educational opportunity from the trade union movement, learnt how to negotiate, learnt how, you know, public speaking, all those kind of things. And the trade union movement isn't the force it was, it's halved in numbers, and more than that, in influence. So those routes aren't open anymore. So I think whilst paradoxically, the situation's improved, more kids can go to university. When I was born, it was 4%. It was the preserve of a tiny elite. And education is much better post-war and all of that, huge advances. But it's difficult if you haven't benefited from education to get those opportunities second and third and fourth opportunities that the trade union movement and other opportunities uh, gave you in the post office you could start as a telegram boy when it was part of the civil service and you could take the civil service exam when you were 21 irrespective of what your university quality whether you went or not and move anywhere in the civil service those kinds of opportunities have dried up and i think that's why it would be more difficult to do that now
0: Alan, it was it completely instant for me when I spotted the connection between the three titles of these books that you were possibly a Beatles fan, as they come from (laughs) Beatles songs. And as Education Minister, you did get to meet Paul McCartney at one point. Maybe you could read from The Long and Winding Road where you come face-to-face with your idol?
6: I'd entertained the hope that I might get a quick introduction, but I never dreamed Paul would make his way to where I was standing, look into my eyes, and engage me in conversation. I would have crawled across a field of upturned drawing pins, to prostrate myself before my lifelong hero. At least then I'd have had time to think of something to say. As it was, I was caught unprepared and totally and utterly speechless. The cheese sandwich went down the wrong way and the cup slopped tea into the saucer as I hastily put it down to cling too tightly to Paul's outstretched hand. He smiled and asked cheerily, "'How's it going?' I so wanted to tell him how this boy had been the song I'd sung at my failed audition with Peter Jay and the Jaywalkers, the only time I came close to rock stardom. How I'd actually wanted to be a paperback writer at the time that song was released. How Eleanor Rigby had inspired me and for no one made me cry. But all I could do, eventually, was mouth platitudes, so meaningless that I can't recall a single garbled word of any of them.
0: And thanks there to Alan Johnson. The Long and Winding Road is published by Bantam Press. That's it for tonight. Remember, you can follow us at Bookshow RTE on Twitter. We're back here on RTE Radio 1 at 7pm next week. And my thanks to producer Regan Hutchins and to series producer Zoe Cummins.